Matthew chapter 19 and read the larger conversation that Jesus has about divorce in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 5 verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Turn over now, if you would, to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce, and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, uh, th these are um, yeah, I'm just reminded of what Kyle said in Sunday school this morning, that there's nothing uh, that goes on in the course of uh, of our lives as human beings that the Bible does not give us a conversation partner for. And that's certainly true of this this morning. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be present among us. We pray that the truth would be spoken, but we pray that it would be the truth in love. And we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the finished and completed work of your son, Jesus. Uh, without any of those things, without any of those, uh, without, without any of that, uh, Lord, we would be utterly without hope, particularly when it comes to the question of marriage and divorce. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I've told you before that when I was in second grade, my friend Troy Dodd told me that he and his mom and his sisters we're moving away from Atkinson, Nebraska. This was particularly crushing to me because Troy played shortstop on our baseball team, and he was a really good shortstop. He was also a really good friend. I asked him why they were moving away, and he told me that his parents were getting a divorce. I'd never heard of divorce before. I went home being completely distraught and told my mother with tears in my eyes that Troy's parents were getting a dodge. She corrected me and said, no, Kyle, I think you mean they're getting a divorce. That was the naivete of a second grade boy in 1979 living in rural Nebraska. You would think now that with all the divorce in our culture, we'd be good at it. 
You'd think we'd have found ways to navigate the hurt and the impact of divorce on all the people who are affected, but we haven't, and we're not. Perhaps even more troubling is the way the church has, or perhaps has not, responded to the pervasiveness of divorce within our society. I came across a rather insightful quote this week from one New Testament scholar. He writes, the American evangelical church is vexed by divorce because we're vexed by marriage. And we're vexed by marriage because we're vexed by love. You see, we've adopted ideals of love and marriage that owe more to popular culture's romantic comedies and the Hallmark Channel than they do to the biblical ideal. Let me read that again. The American evangelical church is vexed by divorce because we're vexed by marriage. We're vexed by marriage because we're vexed by love. You see, we've adopted ideals of love and marriage that owe more to popular culture's romantic comedies and the Hallmark Channel than they do to the biblical ideal. Our text for this morning is two verses long. Even if we take into consideration the larger section in Matthew's gospel, there is no way that we could do justice to such a difficult and pastorally and emotionally sensitive topic as divorce. So this morning, as we give attention to Jesus' words, we want to chase down the principles that he teaches in both of the Matthew texts. Jesus presumes when he answers, uh, not only in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, but also in Matthew 19, as he's answering the Pharisees' question, he presumes that we know what the Bible teaches about love, marriage, and therefore divorce. And so this morning, we want to give attention to those topics so that we can begin to rightly feel the force of what he's teaching in our texts. For this morning, we also need to pause and remind ourselves as we think about what Jesus teaches about divorce, that this is not just for Christians. Friends, let's please remember that the Sermon on the Mount is about human flourishing. And I've been struck with how apologetic the church at times has been for holding to something that gets dubbed in a really pejorative sense as, well, you just hold to traditional family values. As we will see, the one who created marriage created it for our benefit. And there is specific wisdom for his creation. We would then do well to heed it. Now, the big idea for our time together this morning, it's very simple, very short. Here it is. Jesus is against divorce. Jesus is against divorce. Three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. There's a culture of divorce then and now. There's a culture of divorce then and now. Jesus indeed quotes, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting there the text that Abby read for us. He's quoting Matthew chapter, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And then in the questions that the Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, the same text is cited. 
Is it really indeed okay to give a woman a certificate of divorce for any cause? Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And what's going on there is there's a, there's a question, there's a wrestling through what two particular phrases mean in Matthew, excuse me, in Deuteronomy chapter 24. The first one is that phrase, if a man has a wife and she finds no favor in his eyes. Well, what exactly does that mean? Now, let's stop and think about this just practically. Uh, those of you who have been married for more than five minutes, so everybody here except maybe Ben and Claire, if you've been married more than five minutes, you know that there are days in which you get up and your spouse may have a lot of things in your eyes, but favor is not one of them. I love the fact uh, when my when my nephew got married, we were standing before the wedding talking to him and uh, my sister, Aaron, uh, who has this gift of really being encouraging, uh, said to Teague, now you just need to know there's never going to be a day you're going to like her more than today. You'll love her more, but you're never going to like her as much as you do right at this moment, because after today, boy, the gloves come off. You're, you're going to get just, you're going to get every bit of one another. And that's just how it goes. So what does it mean when Moses says, if she finds no favor in his eyes? Because again, if you're married, you know, yeah, that's just called Tuesday. That's just called the day of the month in which we sit down and we have to pay bills. Or that's the day in which we're trying to negotiate stuff with the extended family. Or that's the day in which the parenting thing that we've never really quite agreed on, it rears its head. And now we have to have that conversation for the 900th time. What does it mean when Moses says she finds no favor in his eyes? He goes on and says, well, it could be that he finds something indecent about her. Well, again, what does that mean? What does it mean that he finds uh, indecency? What constitutes indecency in this? Now, there were different schools of thought in Jesus' day and time. There was one school of thought that he went so far as to say, well, uh, finding no favor in indecency could be that if she burns his dinner repeatedly, he's free to divorce her. Or understanding that the phrase, the, the key idea there was in his eyes. So uh, if a man takes a wife when he's young and the years go by and she doesn't age particularly well, he's free to, as it were, uh, trade up. You can trade in his wife for a younger model, if you would. Wives like cars, right? Every two years, you should upgrade. There was a widespread culture of divorce in Jesus' day. And it wasn't just men divorcing women. We also know from extra-biblical sources that women who were wealthy and who came from good established families, women could do the same thing. Your husband get a little older, not quite as peppy, not quite as Michelangelo David as he used to be, and maybe more the blob. Eh, you can trade him in. The women could trade up as well. 
And so into this widespread culture of divorce, Jesus has very specific things to say. Now, it's important that we understand that divorce was as much of a cultural phenomenon in Jesus' day as it is ours. See, sometimes we like to think and we like to sort of, uh, in a nostalgic sense, go, oh, well, Jesus didn't really have to deal with divorce. It wasn't that big a thing. No, it was. The divorce culture was as pervasive in Jesus' day as it is in ours. And it's interesting if you think about uh, what's going on in our society at this particular moment, folks who track these kind of statistics are now admitting that divorce statistics are much harder to track than they were even 20 years ago because cohabitation has become a viable option for so many younger couples. You're saying, well, why are they living together? Well, they're living together because the vast majority of them are the products of divorced and broken homes. They don't want anything to do with marriage. On top of that, the cultural taboo of living together has now been completely removed. In fact, now the thinking goes this way. You wouldn't buy a new car without test driving it. Why would you get into a relationship without trying it out? I did my first wedding 27 years ago. I know. <laughs> Please don't tell them I wasn't really a minister when I did it. I'm kidding. I was, but just barely. I could presume when I sat down with them and did their premarital counseling, I could presume that they had some understanding of what the Bible taught about marriage. I also had the benefit with the first couple that I married that both of them came from homes that were still intact. They had seen the model of a man and a woman committed to one another, sacrificially loving and forgiving one another. They had seen that modeled in their lives. I'm going to be honest. I now dread premarital counseling. And I dread it because I know that somewhere along the line of sitting down with them, I'm going to say things to them that they're absolutely going to hate and they're going to think that I'm just an awful human being. And all I'm saying to them are things that the Bible teaches. All I'm saying to them is I'm simply trying to, uh, to recite what the Bible has to say about the nature of marriage. And that society doesn't define marriage, God does. And all the things that we're about to see in the second point of the sermon, those are the things we're trying to bring out. Those are the things we're trying to make clear. And at the end of the day, they hate it. And because I really want people to like me, it kills me because they hate me. Because I'm the messenger. Friends, the culture of divorce in Jesus' day is no different from the culture of divorce in our day. Secondly, then, we need to bring the Bible to bear on this question. That's what Jesus does. In Matthew 5, as he's teaching, he says, it was also said, and then again in Matthew 19, he quotes, but he doesn't quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24. He actually goes back a bit further. He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, and he points them to creation. 
So in other words, he's reminding them, not just that God created man, male and female, but also then for their benefit, he gave them the gift of marriage and reminds them that in that, in that, that, that sacred union, in that mystery that occurs in marriage, the two become one flesh. And so as we think about this question of marriage, and we think about the question of love, and we think about the question of divorce, we have to go back to the very beginning. That's what Jesus does. We have to remind ourselves of what it is that the Bible teaches us about what it means to be human, what it means to be male, what it means to be female. And the fact that marriage is not some culturally defined or societally defined legal contract. But rather, marriage is a God-given covenant between a man and a woman. And that God-given covenant is to be for our benefit. There's, I, I, so many comedians have done it. It's hard to tell who was the first. Probably George Burns because he was the oldest. Uh, but George Burns used to say, I, I think everybody should get married because I believe everyone should be miserable. Well, friends, that's not the Bible's account of marriage. Marriage, as we learn in Genesis 2, is for our benefit. It's for our blessing. There's a beauty to the rhythm of Genesis 1 and 2, as God looks at his creation at the end of every day, he says, it's good. And so we have this beautiful poetic rhythm of day one, it's good. Day two, it's good. Day three, good, 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 good. But when, when God sees that the man is alone, suddenly that beautiful rhythm is disrupted and we hear these words, it is not good. We must bring the Bible to bear on this question. Furthermore, as we've already said, the relationship of marriage is a covenant. And covenant is defined at times uh, with those three words that you see in your outline. Presence, advocacy, and formation. That God is with us. That God is for us. And that God is forming or moving us into a, there's a direction that we're going. There's a direction that we're moving. And so he promises Abraham as Abraham goes to the promised land, that God will be with him, that he will be for him, and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. <clears throat> In other words, God God's promises his presence. He promises his advocacy. And he promises that he's using the covenant relationship for his particular goals and end. Well, friends, the same thing is true then of marriage. Marriage is a covenant in which a couple pledges their presence. They pledge their advocacy. And as Paul Tripp powerfully reminds us in his wonderful book or in the video series, What Did You Expect? God has put you in your marriage to use you to form your spouse to look more and more like Christ. 
Not so that your every whim or need would be met. Not so there was someone who uh, can act like your mom, but more so. Not someone to fulfill all the needs and gaps in your life, no. No, but your spouse is there specifically and particularly to move you to become more and more like Christ. When I was coaching at, at Midland, uh, Friday afternoons were walkthroughs, and they became rather, uh, with the defensive linemen anyway, because they're the smartest and the best athletes on the field, um, they would, we would become these, we'd have these kind of deep, like they're all, the, the guys would joke and call, oh, it's Deep Friday. And so we'd talk about all kinds of things on Deep Friday, and one of the things that I would say to them repeatedly, uh, because it's a group of young men, and so the, the opposite sex would oftentimes come up, uh, I would just, I told them more than once that marriage was the greatest means of grace uh, in my life that I think I could ever even imagine. And you know this, uh, again, those of you who are married, you know that if you set out to change your spouse, you're going to be really, really disappointed. But when you're doing marriage right, it changes you. Like it just does. I can't begin to tell you, if, if you think I'm a selfish idiot now, you should have met me 26 years ago. I don't even like me thinking about me 26 years ago. Amy and I have joked and we'll say, hey, if we'd known one another in high school, we would not have liked each other. And that's probably really, really true. What is marriage doing? Well, part of it, part of it being a covenant is that God is using your spouse to form and to shape you to become more and more like Jesus. You cannot change your spouse, but being in a covenant marriage relationship does change you. Being married means you are with, for, and you're in this process because you're moving unto something that by God's grace means your spouse is becoming more and more like Jesus. Well, there's also this wonderful and interesting thing, and this gets to how we understand love. It's something called the perichoresis. It's words that theologians use. It's a fancy made-up word that theologians use to talk about the relationship that's going on between the three members of the Trinity. Now, let's, you're saying, well, what does that have to do with love? Well, remember, the Bible tells us that God himself is love. And that God would be love, even if there was no world to send Christ to. We learn that in John 3, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, what if there is no world? Would God still be love? And the answer is yes. How would God still be love? He would still be love because of the, the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. And that definition or trying to describe what that relationship looks like is summed up in that word perichoresis. It means that in the Trinity there is an indwelling and an interpenetration. That there is a togetherness, that there is a shared common life within the Trinity. And that in that, there is this kind of um, 
and it's in the Trinity, it's it's not sexual in any sense, but there is this kind of interpenetration. There's there's a sense in which, as Jesus says, uh, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of God. He's also called the Spirit of Christ. It's part of the mystery that is in the Trinity. There's also, then, a perichoresis within marriage. That there is in uh, the marriage covenant a kind of mutual indwelling and an interpenetration. Some of you know the mutual indwelling. You've experienced it in a way uh, that many of us, I think, uh, will at some point will probably have to face, but would rather not. Uh, I've heard it numerous times as a pastor. I'm sure you've heard it as well, that when someone loses their spouse, they will say, it feels like a part of me is gone. It's because that's true. There is a perichoresis in marriage. There is an indwelling we oftentimes refer to it as our better half. That beautiful picture of the Trinity then gets reflected within our marriages. The interpenetration in marriage is like the Trinity's, but not. Ours is indeed uh, reflected uh, most poignantly within sexual intimacy. It's why we can never say, oh, it's just sex. No, it's not. It's not. It's this reflection of this deep, loving relationship. It's a reflection of something that is divine in its origin. Let me just say, it's also why we need uh, little books like the book of Ruth. Yes, Ruth reminds us of the price that Christ was willing to pay to redeem his bride. But it also shows us this beautiful picture of the love between a man and a woman. And we see the perichoresis happening in front of our eyes between Ruth and Boaz. Friends, that's love. Not a rom-com, not something on the Hallmark Channel, and dare I say it, not something in country music. No, true biblical love involves these ideas of covenant and perichoresis, of indwelling and of interpenetration. And we also learn then, finally, that marriage is this picture of Christ in the church. In Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, we're reminded that each and every marriage is making a statement about Jesus and the church. When we speak of the sacraments, we say that the sacraments are pictures of the gospel. I don't want to call marriage a sacrament and make the same mistakes that our Roman Catholic friends make, but I will say this, there is something sacramental about our marriages. Our marriages are a picture 
of Jesus and the church. And our marriages are either telling the truth about Jesus in the church, or they're speaking a lie. But every marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. See, Jesus calls our attention to the entire Bible as he answers these questions and as he draws our attention to this issue of divorce. But far too often, I think, when we think about divorce, we want to go and we, we want to find a proof text. And on the basis of the proof text, we want to argue our position. We want to argue our point. For example, um, I, I've heard people who hold to the, the position that Christians cannot divorce for any particular reason. They will look at that and they will say, well, here's why. Because in that Matthew 19 text, Jesus says in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart. And they'll point to that and they'll go, look, in the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel chapter 36, the promise is, I'll take out your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. So if you are a Christian, you do not have a hard heart. You cannot, by definition. So, on the basis of that, divorce is not permissible for a Christian. Don't do that. Just don't, don't do that. It's possible to say that Jesus is against divorce and yet say, as Jesus says, except on the grounds of. Let's not say more or less than what the Bible says. Thirdly, then, here's another quote from a scholar that I have found to be really helpful. If you come to this text looking for reasons to justify divorce, you're completely missing the point. Jesus is against divorce. Or let's put it this way. Jesus, for all the reasons we just talked about, creation and covenant and perichinesis and the reality that your marriage is a picture of Jesus in the church, Jesus is pro-marriage. And because he's pro-marriage... He's going to be against divorce. But let's remember that this relationship is a covenant relationship. And just like God made a covenant with relationship with Israel, and Israel broke it repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly, and therefore God said, no, I'm out of this covenant relationship. This is, this is what's going to happen now in the covenant. The same thing is true in our marriages. It is possible through the actions of one or both spouses to violate and destroy the marriage covenant. So at that point, divorce is simply a recognition of what one or both spouses has already brought about to pass in their marriage. And what Jesus wants us to understand this morning is when that happens, when the conditions are met that violate and destroy the marriage covenant, it is egregious. But it's not unforgivable. I think that's important to hear. It's important for us to understand 
that Jesus is against divorce, but divorce is not the unforgivable sin. I know we don't deal with it that way as a culture, but we used to. And there may be some of you here this morning who are still sort of wrestling under and and you you still got that sort of stigma hanging about you that because you're divorced you should be wearing a scarlet d on somewhere on your sweater uh, sort of like laverne defazio but maybe brighter and gaudier and that's simply not what the bible teaches it is egregious but it's not unforgivable Friends, if our marriages are sacramental in the sense that they are a picture of Jesus in the church, the table is not just sacramental, it is a sacrament. For it is in every way a picture of how Christ loves the church. I love how Paul, when he talks about it in the context of desertion and he talks about the relationship between husbands and wives, it leads to all kinds of beautiful questions Uh, Is Jesus ever harsh with the church? Is Jesus ever abusive to his bride? No, in fact, the Bible tells us repeatedly that Jesus' attitude towards the church is he's humble and lowly. He's not abusive. Is Jesus unfaithful? the church. No, he's faithful to the point of death. Will Jesus ever desert his bride? No. In fact, the table reminds us not only that Jesus will never leave us and never forsake us, but the table reminds us that he's coming again. And he's coming again to reclaim his bride. And he's coming again for there to be this great and glorious feast, which is a marriage supper. Now, friends, the table is this beautiful picture of how Jesus loves the church. And our marriages can be that as well. Not perfectly, but we can do so faithfully. Let's pray. Father, the the preacher always has a sense of their own inadequacy. Uh, There's always a sense in which we wish there was something better than words, but words are all we have. And I fear this morning was that morning. So, Father, that which is of you, that which is helpful, that which exalts uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that which makes much of the gospel, Lord, we we pray that would stick, that which doesn't, uh, Father, may it be forgotten. Thank you for the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that we who are the bride of Christ have a spouse who is never short, 
never abusive, never harsh, never unfaithful, and will never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, I, I pray for the marriages in our congregation. I pray that what is true of Christ in the church would be true in our marriages as well. And thank you that you use our marriages as a particular means of grace, that you really are using our spouses to form and to shape us to Christ-likeness. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.